You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors 43. And you look at the title of that podcast and you're probably wondering what the heck is going on. So I guess a disclaimer is in order. So it's not my intention to convince you or advocate to support one or another political option. Um, My intention, however, is to get you informed what various political options are stand for um, with relation to issues that are important for, for you, dear listener. Outdoors person, regardless whether you're hunter or angler or hiker or uh, cyclist or runner, there are certain things that are important and they can only be supported or changed through policy. Let me give you an example. Cyclists care about greenways and bike paths and infrastructure to support cycling. Mountain bikers and hikers um, care about land access issues and trail access. Hunters and anglers and animal lovers, for, for that matter, care about wildlife and protection of species. There are also more general issues related to uh, outdoors, like loss of biodiversity and uh, changing climate and so on and so forth. So it is my sincere intention uh, and hope that this is only first podcast of this series where I get to talk to politicians representing various political options. And hopefully, through those discussions, you, dear listener, can be better informed and and make better decisions how to place your support um, to protect the future and improve the future of your sport and your activity. So that's really it. Uh, It just happened that the first politician that accepted invitation to my podcast is Teresia Ferris from Sinn Féin Party. Um, So, without any further ado, let's get right into it. Teresha Ferris, thank you very much for your time taking your time out of your busy schedule to be with us here and uh, talk oh, to you. Thank you for having me, Tommy. Thank you. That's great. Um, so I, I, I was preparing for that podcast and trying to give like a proper and good introduction. Okay. But there are so many things that maybe you're going to do much better job at introducing yourself to our listeners than I would. Okay. Okay, I'll I'll try anyway. Um, I suppose first off, I'm a mother of two children and I'm also a full-time elected representative for Sinn Féin. I'm married to Patrick. We've been together for, oh, I hope I get this right, 17 years now. And I'm one of six children to Martin and Marie Ferris. Um, we grew up in Arfurt. Um, your listeners who are, are familiar with my father would know that he spent 10 years of my childhood in prison. 
and we were effectively raised by a, a single mother household uh, but I had an excellent big brother Eamon who took on the role of father figure for those 10 years and it didn't seem to affect us too badly because we, we've all come out the other end I suppose stronger and better people for it. You see I would never say that. Would you not? <laughs> no, no because I didn't know that. So. No. Oh right okay yeah no I, I, I think listeners when I know when I'm listening mm-hmm. to a radio station I, I like to, to know about the personal side mm-hmm. of the person so I could have gone sure. on that I lecture in law and I'm Kerry County Council so for 16 years but that's kind yeah, of that boring gives a, that to gives people. a personal touch I yeah. agree I yeah. agree so so that's that's a bit about me unless there's anything else you'd like me to to tell your listeners oh yeah you're 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 elected representative for 15 years right it'll and you're be account- 16, 16 in September years, yeah. right and you're also in a, in a county uh, county Kerry council you're the a council county yeah Okay. Yeah, what happened was it was actually my father's timing was impeccable. The mm-hmm. the night before my penultimate exam of my degree, I had Spanish the next morning and company law the, the morning after before I would finish my degree. And my father chose that time and that moment to ring me and to tell me that the party here in Kerry were considering selecting me to be co-opted into Kerry County Council because he had recently been elected to the National Parliament and you couldn't have a dual mandate and he was a sitting councillor so I spent instead of studying you know my Spanish (laughs) and my company law I spent the next two nights going how the heck am I going to tell him no because I've never said no to my father Uh nor did I eventually in that case so in September uh, 2003 I was supposed to sit the entrance exams for King's Inn because it was my dream since I was 11 to become a barrister and the party convinced me to defer that for one year they told me Mm -hmm. To go into the council, contest the elections the following June, which would have been 2004. And then after that, I could go back and get on with my life and co-op somebody else into the seat. And 16 years later, I'm still there. So, <laughs> so maybe the electorate might decide 16 years is enough and I might get my boot out the door on the 24th of May. But we'll see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. Oh, I don't know. Never know um, with elections. Listen, Teresa, so... Like we 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 had a quick chat before this this recording, and and really, uh, I would like to talk to you about various things that might affect uh, outdoors men and women, and and you know they can take that into account where they voting. But perhaps are there any major initiatives or major wins in the past that 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 people might generally not be aware of that could imp- that impacted their their. You know, that yeah, that we've decided or developed a Kerry County Council level, is it? Yeah. So any any you know thing that you you think would impact people who are enjoying the outdoors, mm-hmm. you know, being being you know cyclists or hikers or anglers or whoever else, yeah. that they may not know that oh these great things happen already and. Yeah, well, I, I suppose the thing I'm most excited about at the moment is we are almost uh, at a point where the Tralee Phoenix walkway mm-hmm. is going to be developed. And uh, aside from, you know, the huge positivity that will bring to the area and the opportunity it will give to all of us to enjoy, you know, the outdoor experience a bit more. We're going to be unique here in Kerry because uh, John Edwards, uh, I spoke with him about two, three years ago and we brought him in for deputation to the council and he had what I think is an absolute genius idea and I have Mm -hmm. been you know very vocal in pushing it ever since and that is in addition to the greenway connecting Tralee with Phoenix 
we would develop a loop where you have a yeah. blue way. So going from the canal out to Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, either by kayak or swimming or some other method on the water, right. and then coming back in uh by bike or walking or running, whatever you choose. Um, and eventually uh, it is hoped that that blue way could be developed to go beyond Phoenix and maybe as far as Kerry Head. Wow. So I think that is a huge opportunity for this region because to my knowledge, once we develop both, we will be the first area in the country that has a greenway and a blue way that are connected. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't know. I, I read about the blue way, but I was only going to ask you about that. Yeah. So what's the idea? How is it going to look like? Well, It's there's it's open to so many different ideas. Um, the, the beauty of it is it requires very little infrastructural investment. So there isn't a huge cost associated with it like you would have with the, the Greenway, which is why we're, we're somewhat delayed with the Greenway. We're waiting for an announcement of funding. Mm-hmm. Now, in Kerry County Council, uh, six of the nine municipal district councillors that are there currently have committed €10,000 each this year. So there's a pot mm-hmm. of 60000 there. I gave an extra thousand then to make it eleven thousand towards um signage at the start of the walkway. So once the national money comes, I think it's going to be about all in all about a million euro will be spent on delivering the the greenway between mm-hmm. Tralee and Phoenix. But it will be money well spent. Yes. The blue way on the other hand, all we really need is uh, some people like John Edwards and others who have ideas about water activities and sports that could be operational between the canal, which is literally in the town centre, mm-hmm. um and Phoenix Harbour for them to just come on board and to apply for licenses to deliver those services and the only cost for the taxpayer will be the local authority erecting signage and promoting the fact that this blue way exists wow. yeah so and did you think there's going to be any boys on the water or something just to make yeah. it Okay. You'd have that. Now, we already have the rowing co- club operational yes. out of the canal. And there had been an issue for years there where people being unable to swim because the, the lock gates weren't operational. Mm-hmm. But last year, myself and a couple of other councillors allocated substantial money from our councillors' allocations fund uh, to get those gates operational again so mm-hmm. that the tidal water will clean it from all pollutants. Yes. So it's it's now um, suitable for developing swimming competitions and wow. things out of that's, there. That's fantastic because on the podcast uh, we spoke many times, I guess, about the Trelefinit Greenway and yeah. and also about the Greenway that is in Watford and, and how big was was that devel- opening that Greenway for the local community and the businesses and so on. And, and yeah. that's why we kind of, and I know many listeners of the podcast are quite eager to, you know, kind of, we can't wait until that. What was the biggest obstacle in, in creating? Initially, um, going back to the time that the community first applied for funding, I think the, the big issue was that there hadn't been adequate community consultation. So there was a lot of local mm-hmm. opposition to it. Yes. And once the county council got involved and individual staff members spoke to a number of people who had, in fairness to them, genuine grounds uh, for objecting. Um, and once the local authority was able to remedy some of the issues mm-hmm. that a Greenway would have presented, then they withdrew their opposition to it. Now, you were never going to satisfy everybody. And I, I know and um, I do feel for the people particularly one house in particular literally you come out their back door 
and mm-hmm. you're on top of the greenway. So mm-hmm. there's a whole privacy issue with that. Um, and to our understanding, when we were deciding on this matter in the chamber, uh, most, if not all, of the individuals who had concerns had been met with council representatives and had uh, proposals that they agreed with that could mm-hmm. remedy the issues. Um, so it took a number of years for that. And bear in mind, mm-hmm. we were also in the middle of a recession. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any likelihood of substantial funding coming anytime soon. So then we got to the point where we're now actually shovel ready. It's gone through the planning process. Um, There is, as I said, 60,000 there that the councillors have allocated to start the works or to use as match funding when the national funding comes. So the only hold up at the moment is a government announcement of funding. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would be very hopeful and I'm not just saying this because there's an election next week. Um, mm-hmm. I've been saying this since February. Um, I'm very hopeful that there will be funding announced in, in the coming months. Well, hopefully this is yeah. going to be a big deal. And do you think when do you think it's going to be completed, provided the funding will be announced? If, if funding comes this year, I mm-hmm. would imagine that it will be completed within a number of months. Wow. I would imagine so, yeah. Oh, wow, that's yeah. great to hear. And do there, are there any plans for any other greenways in, in Kerry area? I know there's a lot yeah. of talk about the greenway in... in uh, North Kerry Listole. North Kerry Listole and then uh, around the Ring of Kerry. The I, I South Kerry so Greenway, yeah. yeah. The, the South Kerry Greenway, um, and maybe when I am uh, a representative for the Tralee Municipal District, I, I shouldn't be saying this because we will want to promote the Tralee Phoenix one as best we can, but... When, and I say when because I'm absolutely confident, see when the South Kerry Greenway is developed, Mm -hmm. it will be, I believe, a greenway that will compete with any other internationally. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can just imagine how beautiful it is going to be for walkers and cyclists when you're traveling over that viaduct before you come into Carsivine, looking out at the ocean, looking at the scenery for miles around. It will be absolutely stunning. Uh, Again, I appreciate that there are people that have concerns, um, some of them, about the way in which they claim the council have approached this matter with them. Um, Some are saying they're supportive of the Greenway, but they're opposed to the council using a compulsory uh, purchase order. Hmm. My understanding is that if only one person objects and refuses to sell their portion of land Mm -hmm. back to the council, then they have to CPO the entire uh, thing. Now, I'm open to correction on that. What it means is, you see, you have a number of landowners who are happy and are working with Kerry Mm -hmm. County Council, but there are some that aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're going to be going after, my understanding is, an order from the state that gives them permission to compulsorily take that land. Now okay. they'll be paying for it. Oh, that's what CPO means. A CPO, mm-hmm. compulsory purchase order. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of people that are, you know, objecting to the use of that mechanism. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any other way for, for them to achieve this, given that the feedback we've gotten mm-hmm. is whatever about a number of other landowners along the line, there are a small amount that the council staff that have been dealing with them believe no matter what they do, they're not going to agree to Mm -hmm. the project. So I I just think it's essential for that part of the county in particular. It is being decimated. We see on the streets of Carsevine, you know, shops and retail uh, places that have been open for generations and they're shut and mm-hmm. they're derelict and it, it needs an injection of something for employment um, and for the, the the local people to have an amenity as well that they can be proud of. Yeah. And I think also one of the one of the issues that are that I, I have a 
Uh, some people raising with me is that massive traffic that is around the ring of Kerry, especially of, yeah. of coaches with, with tourists and the rental cars and all that. And probably that would be some alternative. Obviously, yeah. that wouldn't alleviate completely issue with traffic and, and the road, you know, infrastructure and suitable for that. But at least some of those tourists will jump on the bike and and, and, and cycle or that. that yeah, I mean, Kerry has attracted uh, walking and cycling tourists for, for decades, um, even during periods where we didn't even have cycle lanes and our roads were, were very dangerous to travel. So can you imagine how many more we will attract when we have safe, um, accessible uh, routes available to them? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think, you know, it, it's just going to be the injection that we need in every part of this county hmm. to have the, these type of facilities available, not just for ourselves to use, uh, but also visiting tourists. Yeah. Uh, while we're on this subject of cycling, uh, some of my old and trusty cycling listeners would kill me if I not ask you that question. What's your What's your view on the issue of cycling paths, cycling lanes and uh, cars that are so, you know, yeah. some of those are like, these are essentially parking space, not the cycling yeah. lane, because there's always cars parked there. And is there, do you think there's any way of addressing that problem? Look, it's it's an interesting question because my, my position has evolved on this as I've learned more about it. I, I would have been very vocal and very supportive of developing designated cycle lanes, but more and more across Europe they're actually making those lanes redundant and it's about creating an environment, particularly in your town centres, um, where it's a shared space, um, mm -hmm. where vehicles are travelling at a space that make it safe for cyclists and rather than having um, your motorists getting crossed with your cyclists and vice versa, where mm -hmm. you create a culture where this is a shared space for pedestrians, cyclists and motorists. Um, okay. In relation to the roads outside of the towns, what absolutely drives me mad there is no point in Kerry County Council drawing a white line and putting in emblems of cyclists mm -hmm. and saying this is a designated cycle lane when it is full of potholes and then you have manholes where the tar has sunk around it and you're literally more at risk cycling in that lane than you are if you veer out I, onto I, the motorway. I can't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> agree so more. if we're going to develop cycleways, they have to be fit for purpose. And they have to be maintained. And even something as simple as the ones where the surface might be okay, when you don't have a regular cleaning program and there mm -hmm. might be chips or pebbles mm -hmm. um, that haven't been leaves swept up, leaves that. that are making it a hazard. Mm -hmm. um, that yeah. has to be addressed. But also the other bugbear I have as someone who lives in a very rural area with very narrow roads on the way is when you have cyclists on those kind of roads cycling two abreast, mm -hmm when there's a vehicle coming from one direction or the other. So there has to be a bit of accommodation on both sides. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that I actually look it up in the, in the regulation of road that Ireland allows in the regulation of road yeah. to cycle to abreast. Yes. Like, you know, I, I, I come from Poland. That's, you know, you, you're just cycling in, you know, single, uh, look, single it's, file. <laughs> it, it's fine when there aren't any vehicles coming from either side that you might be impeding. Mm. Um, and look, when you are out cycling, it, it is a, a social event as such mm -hmm. as well. And it's time. I know for my own husband, he was a cycling enthusiast before he had his back operation. It was a chance for him to have uh, a few hours himself and his friends mm -hmm. catch up on stuff that they may have missed during yeah. the week and that. And and I have no issue with them cycling to abreast. But 
the road safety rules also mm-hmm. say you have to drive or cycle with care. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that also means an area. So, for instance, you have a speed limit mm-hmm. of 80 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. But if the driving conditions are such that driving at 80 kilometers an hour would be treacherous or dangerous, mm-hmm. the rules of the road say you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So while it allows yeah. you to cycle to abreast, only where it is safe mm-hmm. to do Common so. Common sense. Yeah. And I guess, like you said, it's kind of developing those this culture of, of sharing sharing space. space. And, yeah. and, and it's like... Um, <clears throat> I don't. I'm just wondering, just of the, of that subject that we just discussed, where to pivot because there are two things that uh, I want to talk to you next. And one is a uh, um, land access, and I know that you're mm-hmm. you, you've been involved in that, about land access. So before we're gonna go to to climate change, okay. because that's the next thing, I think it 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 gives us nice segue because we talked about. Uh, issues with the uh, greenway and the land access and maybe b- purchasing it back. Now, one of the things that I'm, that I'm saying on the, on the, when we're talking about the subject of conservation and, and wildlife and so on and so on is like, okay, the basis of that is a land management policy. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are we managing land? How, how, how's it, you know, how is access to land managed and whether people can access land or can access land and so on and so forth. And I know that you've been involved in, in the discussions around the land access and, and, and public access, public right of way, I suppose, to it. Can yeah. you, can you, uh, you know, uh, lay it out for, for our listeners? Yeah, my, my position on it, and it may not be popular, uh, depending on who your listener is, but, you know, I, I suppose just to put it in context, there is an absolute obsession almost uh, amongst Irish people when it comes to ownership. Um, and that goes back to our history mm-hmm. and, and our very painful history. So so I understand that. And there's a reason why our constitution, you know, when it was being drafted in 1937, decided to give almost absolute rights to property owners mm-hmm. um, because people had literally fought and died for the right to own um, a piece of land. Mm-hmm. So I understand why there is a reluctance or why there is um, a practice of reluctance to, you know, give any right over land that, you know, has been in family for a number of generations. That said, anywhere where there is an existing right of way, and and I have butt he- butted heads on a number of occasions with council management because I don't think Kerry County Council is doing its job in effectively protecting the rights of way that exist. For example, when you look at Phoenix Island, mm-hmm. um, when you look at access to some of the most beautiful beaches that we have uh, in this county, there has been a hesitancy to enforce the legal rights of the public to access those places through the long established paths that have been in place for, you know, time memorial. Mm -hmm. But I do also support the right to, or not the right, I support calls to develop more uh, Mm -hmm. walkways and uh, I don't say rights of way, but more access to parts of this country, but only where there is consultation with and respect yes. for the landowners. And most landowners I know, and we're talking primarily about, you know, people who are involved in agriculture and farming. Yes. Um, you have to be respectful of the business that they are running. Yes. And the fact that a lot of them are very concerned about their exposure to liability under the Occupiers Liability Act and if somebody is to injure themselves when they're traversing their lands. So I I believe, and it comes back to what we were saying about the cyclists and the Mm -hmm. motorists, I do Mm -hmm. think that there is a space for accommodation 
of, you know, the public's desires to access parts of uh, land and also to the landowner's right to protect himself and his livelihood. And and I do think that with a little bit of uh, a sensible approach um, and a community spirit uh, that we can achieve this. So like, for instance, in Arfurt, um, I was involved with the Arfurt Development Association. And a couple of years ago, we set up a number of different subcommittees. And one of them was a subcommittee to establish walkways um, in our village and the surrounding areas, because we're a very, very historical village. And the biggest obstacle we faced was trying to get access and to get agreement to traverse certain areas so that you could create loops where people could go and take in some historical sites or just an amenity uh, walkway. And so many years later, we're not any further Hmm. along. So tell me, because this is very interesting to me. Um, So how the what the law says about the liability? Because yeah. it seems to me like I, I, I had again, I had a discussion on the podcast on a number of occasions. Uh, I, I was talking with uh, um, his name was Brian Fennell, my, my buddy, Brian Fennell, who is a recreational officer in County Wicklow. Um, and he's working with with farmers to actually exactly designate the parts of the of the their land as yeah. a as a walkways or a pathway so people can enjoy the outdoors essentially i also spoke um about access for mountain biking for example mm-hmm. right so what the law says at the moment that if you're on the land that is owned by somebody else like farmer's land and yeah. you fall off your mountain bike yeah. The farmer is liable for that? Is that what the law says? You see, there, there's three different categories of people that would be entering your... It, it's not it even have to be your property. You don't have to own it. It's just kind of property that you occupy. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what category the visitors fall into, the mm-hmm. level of the standard of care that's owed to them by the landowner. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine if there's a designated or an established trail Uh, whether it's for biking or for walking or whatever, even if it's for members of hunting clubs, Mm -hmm. the responsibility would be um, to make sure it's at a standard that could not cause them injury. So if it's somebody who is that we would understand in in layman's terms, somebody who's trespassing, who's there with the intent uh, to do something that they shouldn't be and without your permission, the, the law says you have to take or you can't do anything to deliberately cause that person harm. So you're not going to leave out bear traps for them. Mm-hmm. And then when their leg mm-hmm. is amputated as a result, mm-hmm. try and say, oh, well, they were trespassers. The law will impose a financial liability on you as well mm-hmm. as a criminal, um, I would imagine. But say for you, you or I, if we were deciding that we we're going to go along a walkway and let's say um, fencing had broken down or had um, been breached and there was a sharp element there and I cut myself or you cut yourself on it, there could be a potential liability mm-hmm. to the landowner for not ensuring... For negligence. That the- well, it's under negligence that they would be taking the cases, but it would be, basically, there would be an increased responsibility on the landowner to make sure the lands are maintained in such a way that it might, it, it would not cause harm. To yeah. somebody using it, does does it make it even more difficult if you're if you're building like a uh, mountain bike trails and you have like a six foot drop offs and stuff like that? Well, that you know you you can't you can't break your yeah. neg. So that probably falls well, in different category. When altogether. it comes to to negligence, I mean the the first question the court is going to look at if somebody is going to sue a landowner is you know did they owe this person a duty of care? And mm-hmm. in in those kind of examples you've given. 
there's no doubt that they will. The next thing they look at is, well, what standard of care was owed? And what they would look at is the likelihood of injury, mm-hmm. um, the, the risk of injury uh, occurring, um, the potential seriousness of the mm-hmm. injuries. Um, so if you're talking about drops like that, yeah, but I mean, like, a, like, a, bikes, like, a, like a obstacles that are there put on yeah. purpose, right, to do jumps and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but you're, you're talking but about then na- you're, naturally occurring no, not risks natural. that are there, like a cliff is yeah, a yeah, feature yeah. that's naturally there. And yeah. how are you going to prevent... But you know, but you know what you're doing, right? You're, you're, yeah, you're there's this, riding your bike against that to jump and then something goes wrong and you fall. But you <laughs> see, you and I, mm-hmm. you know, are very logical and fair-minded people and, and mm-hmm. that's what you would presume. But I mean, you need only look at some of the civil actions that have been taken. I mean, mm-hmm. against the Aquadome here in Tralee oh. um, and against other leisure facilities where, you know, you would imagine common sense would mean the judge would say, well, look, you know, if you're going to run on slippy tiles, there is a chance you that can... you're going to slip and hurt yourself. Yeah. But awards have been made. Uh, so that's that's why there is that level of fear among right. some landowners, because and it does not seem that sense is prevailing when it comes to mm-hmm. negligence cases and awards. Being so given. is there any effort to change the law in that matter? To, to kind there of are make... talks about it. Mm-hmm. There are. Um, and it, it's not so much about changing the law. It's about seeing if there is scope to introduce guidelines around the compensation and that is awarded uh-huh. and the rules that will govern that. Now, you have the Personal Injuries Board has been kind of a step towards that. But quite a number of businesses are, are telling us that it's becoming more and more um impossible for them to continue to to trade you know solvently with the massive insurance premiums they're facing because of some personal injuries cases that have been taken against them but then when you talk to those in the legal profession um, Mm and they would argue that you know the same insure because always what is being said is when you look at the rate of awards that are given in England for same injuries that are given much higher awards here in Ireland, Mm -hmm. that's the reason the insurance premiums are so high. But what's interesting is the lawyers in this country would tell you that the insurance premiums, despite having lower awards and less awards, I would imagine, in the English courts are just as high. So I think there needs to be, you know, an informed discussion around this to see how we can alleviate landowners and occupiers um, fears of their exposure to potential cases in the future. Yes. Because it's in everyone's interest yes. uh, to develop more amenities. It's in everybody's interest for that to happen, but not when it's going to be to the cost or to the yeah. detriment of an individual. Exactly. And that, that would be incentive for landowners to designate a part of their land that they're maybe not using for yeah. grazing or anything else. Like let's let's build a trail there or let's build, you know, exactly. something and then everybody can benefit from that. Right? Like coming back to the greenways, when you look at some of the ingenuity uh, by the landowners along the established walkways and the businesses that they have been able to Mm -hmm. run off the back of the greenway, there's huge opportunity for everybody. Yeah. So if you had a a bike trail, there could be a Mm -hmm. spin-off business by one of the landowners as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, so let's talk about climate change. Okay. It's like... So, top subject number one, topic number one, all yes. over the place. Um, 
So what's your, and, and maybe I'm just going to like, whatever we, we're talking about, is that position of the whole party or is it like your position or is it like any, any well, maneuver? That, today that I'm, I'm, I'm talking in a personal capacity, but mm -hmm. to, to be fair, the vast majority of what I believe is already adopted policy by my mm -hmm. party, which is why I'm a member of the party I am. Okay, so yeah. there is no... Yeah. no. So if, if I'm not sure about the party's position, something I'll, I, I'll, I'll say that, or if, <laughs> if it's something that might be controversial, Controversial. I, mm -hmm. I'll preface it by saying my personal opinion. Okay. All okay. right. Very good. So, climate change. Like, yeah. what are the what are the ways uh, and what we should do to tackle that? And okay. is that even possible to tackle? Yeah. Well, it's it's looking like we're not going to meet our targets, and we're going to be facing huge fines as a result of that. And in fairness, the financial consequences should not be our biggest concern. Our biggest concern should be you know, why aren't we meeting the targets and what can we do to make sure that we leave this world in a better place than in which we received it. Mm -hmm. um, because which is not looking like going to happen. No. <laughs> and, and you know what's really frustrating is um, when you look back at ancient Ireland and if you look at, you know, the, the ancient communities that existed, like particularly in Brehan times, they considered themselves the custodians of the land. Mm -hmm. And and before it was ever, you know, a fad or a buzzword or anything of that nature, um, those in Brehan society sought their responsibility to guard and protect the environment in which they were. And they were custodians to pass it on, protected to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And as I've traveled around the world, it's, it's really interesting to see indigenous populations mm -hmm. in the 21st century. And they still view things that way. The Native Americans, the Aboriginals, just, just to name two of mm -hmm. the indigenous populations that I have had interactions with. And, and they do their utmost but they're facing a losing battle because they're up against the West of the rest of the Western developed world, who for too many generations were far more concerned about profit mm -hmm. and what material wealth they could generate rather than thinking ahead to, well, how will this impact on the world in which we live and how will it impact on my grandchildren and their grandchildren and thereafter. So the penny has finally dropped, I think, with mm -hmm. the majority of us in the Western wor world. Um, mm -hmm. But my concern is in this country, mm -hmm. and I limit my comments to this country, that again, there is no real thought being put into the measures that need to be introduced to try and get us somewhere near making the targets that we need to. So, for instance, the governments and a number of other parties suggestion that we should introduce a carbon tax is absolutely, in my view, ridiculous. Now, I know that there's an awful lot of people out there who whose opinions on other matters I share that will be, you know, pulling out their hair listening to me saying this. But the reason I say that is this. It will not do anything to reduce the reliance on fossil fuels in this country, yeah. simply because people from the lower socioeconomic groupings do not have the option at the moment of having electric cars, never mind hybrids. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to be doing is punishing them for not being in a financial position to be able to upgrade their car to a newer car. Poor people who are reliant on turf and briquettes and coal and oil to fuel their houses do not have access 
to the money that would be required to upgrade their heating systems in their home. Um, so they will continue to burn turf and coal, but they will be paying more yeah. for it. So what we need to see before... Yeah, they're not going to stop having heat, right? No. Well, that may well be happening. And then what you'll have yeah, is... Yeah, unless have, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna completely destroy them you'll, financially. You'll have more people that will develop hypothermia because we already have an issue in this country where we have uh, an older population who are living in poverty and they're living in food poverty and fuel poverty. And if we impose a carbon tax, yeah. they are going to be disproportionately affected. So they're going to be living in even greater fuel poverty than they already are and food poverty as well mm -hmm. because they're going to have to have some element of heat so what my party is proposing is that before you introduce a carbon tax you introduce a load of measures that facilitate people to upgrade their heating systems to actually have an option of owning an alternative type of vehicle and then what you do is when you have given people the option and the opportunity to have an alternative source then you introduce your carbon tax because then people have a choice and um, whereas currently the way it's proposed it's not going to be giving people a choice it's going to be punishing people who aren't in a financial position to be able to respond in the way they need to to re reduce their reliance on fossil fuels yeah. the other thing is is our airline companies who are making mm -hmm. multi-billions every year do not pay any VAT or tax on the fuel that they're using to fly their planes and you have um and I, I'm going to use this. That word. seems to that seems to me not right. <laughs> no, and like and a fly, flying flying industry, that's a very special thing, right? There, this yeah. is like how and they that's operate why is kind we of get strange. and we all benefit from it. And that's why I'm saying it won't be popular. We all benefit from the cheap deals. That's mm -hmm. why some of us can afford to go to the sun. You know, every second year or whatever it By is. By the way, the global warming, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, there are people who go away, they fly for weekends in a city abroad mm -hmm. or that go to New York shopping at Christmas. I would consider that frivolous mm -hmm. and unnecessary flying. Mm -hmm. um, I would rather see those people spend their money in cities here in Ireland or go and shop locally. Mm -hmm. um, so why not impose extra charges on the fuel consumption for those journeys and therefore the person who's in a privileged position that they can afford to do in the first place they should be paying more yeah. so there's a load of measures they could introduce before they get to the carbon tax this is very interesting because just yesterday i had a similar conversation about the climate change is that uh what what you're talking now locally about people yeah. who are the, the the lower income people who are going to be in, in, impacted the most the same mechanism is 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 working globally where yes. where the countries who are developing countries third world countries african countries yeah. they're going to be hit the most Yes. Because they can't afford, and you know, we, we saw these these pictures of the somewhere in the middle of Africa, where is a, a vaccination station, yeah. where they have a, a small refrigerator powered by solar panel, yeah. and it's like, well, that doesn't really work, and all those vaccines goes bad because you know that that that's all, and these countries will be most affected not the countries who are actually producing the most yeah. emissions because they, you know, the West can cope with that. And this is fascinating that that on a global and macro scale, the same exact mechanism applies on the local scale, the micro yeah. scale. For the, so and, and on that global level, it is the developed wealthier countries that had industries for generations that caused 
a lot of the damage that mm. we're witnessing the results of now. And it is those developing countries that are now the most industrialized mm-hmm. and up until this point hadn't contributed to the climate damage that mm-hmm. has been done. Yeah. And yet they're now going to suffer as a consequence of, you know, yeah. you industries. Can't have, you now. can't have oil now. No. No, you it's, didn't it's, have an oil for all those generations. Now you can't have it as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and do you think that this this is really possible to to tackle on a global and a local level? Because like sometimes yeah. you you listen to some people and you say like, well, it's absolutely, you know, uh, situation is so bad we, we can't do anything. And and you know, I I hear voices saying like, well, nothing can be done anyway. Well, one thing's for sure and, and certain: we can't do nothing. Um, and if if we do, I, I dread to think of the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think like even locally, for instance, very simple measures that actually save county councils money. Um, we spend, I would dread to think how much every year mm-hmm. on maintenance of green areas, mm-hmm. be they grass verges along our roads, be they our town parks. And I have proposed to Kerry County Council, let's set wildflowers there. There's no maintenance, so you're not using machinery to cut mm-hmm. it down every week uh, for the entire growing season. You are also providing food for our dying bee populations and supporting biodiversity. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So that's one simple measure that every local authority around the country could take and add to that, stop using Roundup mm-hmm. and and look at what we could achieve for the environment by just that one simple measure that's great because this is like a great pivot now to the subject of biodiversity okay <laughs> it was like it was just i'm reading was, your mind was just i'm perfect. telepathic yes you must be it was yeah. just perfect because that's another big big subject and, and yeah. something i'm quite passionate about um not only biodiversity and and making sure you know that our nature we take care of it a little bit because yeah. it's obviously in, not in a good shape and also, um, as as opposed, you know, it turns out controversial subject of rewilding and, and yeah. you know, introducing species of animals that were there and they're not there anymore and so on and so forth. So, yeah. so can you lay it out for us? What's, uh, what are the, 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 the proposals on, on that on that regard? Yeah, well, well, that was one one there. And that's mm-hmm. probably the the extent of what I have proposed so far in, mm-hmm. in Kerry County Council. But I, I think we need to stop striving for perfection in the appearance of uh, particularly our shared spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is nothing more beautiful than nature in its natural form. And, you know, there's one person's, you know, tidy and neat is, mm-hmm. is another person's just, no, that's yeah. not, not, not for me at all. Um, whereas, you know, there's so many habitats that have been disturbed mm-hmm. uh, we do have declining populations in in a number of different species even mm-hmm. something as simple as um, our native trees and our native fruits and our native seeds yes. at one stage I think we had in excess of a hundred native Irish apple species and mm-hmm. I think that's down into single digits now so mm-hmm. there's the seed savers are a fantastic organization they're trying to protect and distribute uh, indigenous seeds mm-hmm. um, to protect for future generations I mean going into a supermarket and buying a perfectly formed apple that mm-hmm. and it comes back to what our discussion in a, in was a, earlier in a plastic wrapper, in a plastic wrapper <laughs> that was flown in 
mm-hmm. from halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's illogical. And we, I know <laughs> we all like to have um, what we like to eat all year round, but all crops should be seasonal mm-hmm. and you should eat seasonally and import as little as possible. Ireland used to be a self-sufficient island. It isn't anymore. And if you bring it right down to County Kerry, for instance, we had a huge tillage industry in Kerry. Mm-hmm. We had the finest uh, malt barley. We had a sugar beet industry. All of that now is gone. And mm-hmm. there is, and, and I know... Um, Farmers can be very sensitive about criticism about the over-reliance on beef and dairy. Um, Mm -hmm. But take the environmental uh, issues out of it. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago, and the environmental issues are very, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are more reasons why our agricultural sector need to look more at, you know, going back to tillage farming and having a variety of different crops and that's because the population of the world is increasing Mm -hmm. um, and it's increasing dramatically and I remember an article I read a couple of years ago and it was saying that currently the richest nations in the world are those that have oil and gas reserves and they were predicting that in 30 to 40 years time the richest nations in the world were going to be those that were involved in food production yeah and that's I why heard, we need. Heard, that's why that we too. need to to look at this and diversify our farming a little bit as well, um, and stop striving for this perfection. You know, I mm. remember what apples tasted like when I was mm-hmm. younger. I mean, mm-hmm. thirty years ago, an apple that I would have eaten tasted completely different to what there, there's almost no flavor off of the apples we yeah. get now we don't know what's being injected into them mm-hmm. we don't know the harm that it is doing to oh, us oh it's like with the carrots you know like when you go and buy the carrots of the farmer like yeah. they're, they're proper kind of you know, king, kinked carrots and yes. so they taste and they smell like carrots and yes. then you compare the stuff that you get in Tesco this is like a like a red objects yes. that you and know it's watery <laughs> yeah. a carrot should not be watery exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so it's 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 good and you mentioned like a role of farmers in mm-hmm. in, in, in that because um it sometimes feel like uh people who are pro biodiversity and rewilding they they kind of like a butting heads with farmers they kind Not of in, 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 a, in a opposition no. you don't have that mm-hmm. like, that that feeling no, that my, my experience of the majority of those in the farming community in Kerry are they are the custodians of the land they love the land um, and you know they rely on nature to make a livelihood so they don't deliberately or intentionally do anything the majority of them mm-hmm. not all of them to to destroy what is providing them <laughs> with their mm-hmm. their income and a number of those that are involved in um carry climate action they are involved in food production themselves and mm-hmm. look we have to be realistic about it we are carnivores mm-hmm. okay people the vast majority of people are going to continue to eat meat there is most certainly a need for a dairy and a beef industry but we are going to regret it may be in a decade or maybe in two decades time, we are going to regret if we don't have um, producers of other types of food as well. And we need to go back to producing locally mm-hmm. and purchasing local produce. Um, and that's how we sustain it. I mean, if you look at some of the the biggest corporations, uh, corporations in the world, like Kerry Group, it yes. started off as a cooperative. Um, and that model 
was fabulous now it then became incorporated and it came about profit and we've seen you know that they have become a, a global player but the model they started off with could be introduced um again and it could be around a, a number of different varieties of food and not just the dairy that they started off yeah. with and do you think there there are or maybe not do you think but this is this is a question um about some schemes and programs to help get farmers involved in um setting up designated areas of their land for wildlife and just giving like completely you know to to your point about like yeah. some people are just cutting their their lounge just nice and tidy and and then spray the uh, pesticides on it there's nothing yeah. on it <laughs> but it looks nice to some yeah but then there are people who prefer to have like a you know various species of grass and and you know and uh, flower wild flowers and so on and so forth so what's your position on uh incentivizing farmers mm-hmm. to set out areas of land to wildlife to yeah. native woodlands to uh reintroducing reintroducing species you know we 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 spoke on this podcast again many times on the projects of reintroduce wolves or boar into Ireland yeah. and so on and so forth do you think it's realistic and would it be beneficial um look i i, I suppose no different to my calling on the government to introduce schemes that would enable people to avail of alternative sources of of heat and and travel. Uh, So too, would I support any calls to incentivize landowners to to develop wild areas like what you're describing there? But I I think we have to be practical about it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I would hate to see happen is what we have seen happen with all the other EU subsidy schemes that are there, mm-hmm. that factory farms, you know, a single individual who owns the vast majority of the land is disproportionately benefiting from it. Um, they're getting the bulk of the grants that are coming into this country. Um, I would much prefer to see incentives ring-fenced for those who are your traditional and average and small farmers. And if the bigger factory type farms um, are to do it, I would prefer to see, mm-hmm. you know, them almost being compelled um, mm-hmm. to do it or if they are to be incentivized not to benefit from the lion's share and leave the crumbs for the rest like we've seen happen with the other EU schemes. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a, that's a, that's I suppose the worry that the scheme comes and goes and then the mm-hmm. farmer uh gets uh gets incentive to you know rewild a stream or a piece of land and do something and he gets the money and then that that you know goes away and then like yeah. okay now I'm done with this and this comes back to as a posture or something like that so yeah. it, it has to be like a long-term planning yeah and speaking about long-term planning uh, again on the podcast we spoke a few times about uh sitka spruce there's a big 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 again one of the big conversation about sitka spruce plantations and replacing that with native woodlands uh i think it was episode 29 of the podcast when we talked about this um what's your what's your position on on uh, on the, on what Kilcha is doing and because yeah. obviously environmental groups are taking a big issue with 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 the and, and not only environmental groups i suppose because it on one end on one hand is like oh it's great it's trees it absorbs carbon it helps us to meet mm-hmm. our carbon uh targets on the other hand that's effectively a desert nothing lives there 
The trees are one close to another. There's no wildlife in it. There's a massive pollution going out of that because obviously that's also sprayed because yeah. effectively it's a timber. It's a factory it's forest. A tim- it's a, it's yeah. a factory forest. Like. Yeah. So are there any chances? That is it? Is it? Is it? What's what's uh, what's your position on replacing or moving towards replacing that with more native woodland kind of? Yeah, that, that's a position I always held until I was challenged on it uh, recently, mm-hmm. and I was asked to name what those native tree species were. And I started mm-hmm. naming them and I was told, no, they weren't native mm-hmm. uh, to Ireland. They were introduced and they were, the individual was able to tell me around roughly the period mm-hmm. that those types of trees were introduced to Ireland. So mm-hmm. I'm still working on my counter argument. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do my research <laughs> and uh, see if I can counter that So I'm that thinking that you would like to agree with that, but you just don't no, feel I, like... I, you see, I had totally and completely... Mm-hmm. Up Mm -hmm. until this discussion Mm -hmm. on this campaign with an individual on it. Personally, Mm -hmm. I think aesthetically they look far better. Mm -hmm. Um, These tree or forest factories, as I I often Mm -hmm. refer to them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, fine while they're growing. But then when they are cut down, it's, it's like you scarred. The, the landscape in, yeah, in parts clear, of the county when you go to. called out something like that. Yeah, and look, you know, I, I need to, you know, before I can give a well-informed answer on relation to mm-hmm. the, the species themselves, but definitely I would prefer to see, um, and it comes back to what we're saying about, you know, farming and that there should be a healthy mix yeah. equally with our forests. Um, mm-hmm. There shouldn't be, you know, a reliance on one species uh, alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everything you know, should be looked mm-hmm. at and having a blend of, of different types of, of species. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're excellent. You're, you're very well informed. So I try to go in the, in the kind of specific thing. That I, yeah. but you, I'm, you might not know, but is there, is there any view you have on, on in, in particular on the rewilding, on the reintroduction of wild boar and introduction of wolves potentially further yeah. down the line? Obviously, farmers are like and this is like a difference some mm-hmm. farmers saying like yeah we're custodians of the lands we would like to see wolves but not necessarily next to our sheep yeah and then there's a person like no no absolutely no we have a bigger problems don't even go there and then we have ecological groups who say like well yeah but the whole ecosystem will benefit from that so greatly and so on and and to my surprise, I found this being quite a controversial subject and even yeah. saying word rewilding, there's people coming up. I'll be saying, honest, I'm not informed enough mm-hmm. to to give a definitive position on it. I could see a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm more concerned about is, you know, it's now 2019 and it's mm-hmm. an entirely different country in every way mm-hmm. to what it was when they would have been um, roaming yes. at the time. So I like we have a huge issue with deer in Killarney mm-hmm. and there's often people calling for calls on the mm-hmm. deer. Um, and while most would think, you know, because they're such a beautiful species, they're majestic looking and you might look and say, but sure, what harm? could a couple of deer cause Mm -hmm. but when you look at the rate at which they breed when you Mm -hmm. look at the traffic accidents that Mm -hmm. have been caused 30 percent a year yeah um and then when you look at the whole issue that we have um had in recent years with individuals who have been diagnosed with lyme's disease Mm -hmm. that have been attributed to ticks that Mm -hmm. live on the deer Mm -hmm. 
I would need to look into it a bit more before mm-hmm. I could give a definitive position. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm dodging. No, it's no, just I, it's, I, I don't want to be fair. all things to all people. Mm-hmm. But before I make my mind up on something, no, I want to it's, be it's informed. It's fair. And, and, and Teresha, I many times on this podcast, again, I said, like, I am not so sure about introduction of walls. And because it's yeah. like you say, it's a different country. And it's often that argument like, oh, well, it was like eight million people in Ireland and wolves were there. Mm-hmm. Right. And now it's less as five million and we don't have wolves why but, but then the country is different that 8 million people didn't have iPhones yeah but we occupied much less space even though we were 8 million people True. we occupied much less space and look at the urban spread that we've had and I mean that even comes back to something I, I omitted to say when we were talking about uh, climate change and our carbon footprint mm-hmm. again a carbon tax would disproportionately affect people living in rural Ireland because we don't have a proper or a functioning public transport system. Yes. So there isn't the option. I of live in a transport. rural area, and yeah. that was one of the things. Like when my elderly mother uh, came to me, is it like, yeah. well, you know, you're actually, if you're not driving a car, yes. you're stuck. Totally. We're totally reliant on it. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so. Yeah. So you mentioned deer, and that's another perfect pivot into okay. the deer because um, there are, there's, you know, one of the things in an approach to wildlife management that I that I quite fond of, and it's it's based on American model, which I think America has like absolutely best in the world model of managing wildlife. Um, that money that recreational hunters and anglers mm-hmm. are making are are a source of funding for um, wildlife management. At least in the in the, in the in the large part, so I I have I have some sort of a discomfort knowing that, like you mentioned, there is a problem with deer, right? Too many deer in Killarney National Park, in Wicklow Mountains, in Phoenix Park, Park in, in, yeah. in, in 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 Dublin, and obviously there are people who straight away, if you even mention call, they say like, oh, it's unhumane, it's this and that and something mm-hmm. else, right? So that's a one side of the equation. On the other side, what is happening? I'm not really comfortable with that either because we're hiring people, paying them money, so they're going to do and call the deer. In my view, recreational hunters would gladly pay the money for the privilege mm-hmm. to shoot that deer, have a venison, have a meat, provide a meat for their families, and at the same time kind of alleviate a problem with overpopulation with deer and, and so on. What's your view on that? What's your view on that? Do you do you think like a like a hiring like a you know sharpshooters to call the deer and then is is a better approach versus kind of trying to you know use for a one of the better words recreational hunters mm-hmm. which would benefit and at the same time control the deer population? I don't know to be honest. Um, again, it, it's fraught with difficulties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thought of you know making money off of the back of people shooting mm-hmm. um animals for fun doesn't sit well with me mm-hmm. um and i say that as mm-hmm. someone whose husband is a member of a shooting club mm-hmm. and has often been hunting mm-hmm. um we have some great discussions in in our household uh, but at the same time i can see the the logic mm-hmm. to to what's being proposed there because there is whether we like it or not, there is a desperate need to try and manage 
the deer population uh, mm-hmm. in Killarney National Park. I, I accept that fully. Um, something I have to look at again a bit bit more closely to see mm-hmm. how I'd feel about that. Um, mm-hmm. It's my understanding that there are people paying mm-hmm. nice big sums of money um, to do that exactly what you've described but i i would imagine it's something that's been done unofficially yeah. um so if it was something that could go into the the public purses rather mm-hmm. than somebody's back pocket yes and if it's happening anyway yeah i the, I, I could see the logic to that that's I, i'm maybe i'm gonna lay it out to you where what's my 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 view on that is we actually don't know how many deer we have in ireland mm-hmm. there's no deer census and there's no kind of like a central management of the population. There are a number of deer organizations, yes. non non-governmental organizations, which are not coordinating with each other. And I, I don't think they're advocating for, for any, you know, move in any direction. And obviously, when you go to any hunter's course, the first thing they say, well, you need to know how many deer is there. You need to assess the population. You can plan a call and you do this and that. Yeah. And looking at how it works in, a, in, in, in America, where it's, it's a government, it's a government or agencies who know what is the population, what is the population dynamics. And they say, like, well, this, from this area, this many deer can be taken. From this area, this many. And from this area, like, leave it, mm-hmm. right? And then there's a system tag system in place when you pay for a tag and you know okay let's say we have a surplus of thousand animals in the area right and the rate of success is 50 percent so we can issue 2,000 tags to recreational hunters who pay for the money they go they 50 percent rate mm-hmm. of success right then that money goes back to the management and to land improvement, to rewilding, to you know maybe some schemes for farmers and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a, that's a great model and and you know I'm, I talk a lot about this obviously yeah. because I think that's a good solution. Because here is my concern, and especially with those with those deer organizations, is that hunters and anglers, they are usually i'm not saying they're perfect but they usually are people who care about the environment and they mm-hmm. care about the animal and they, they, care, with you. They, yeah. they care about ocean and so on and so forth on the other hand some ecological organizations they're kind of they're opposing each other they're kind of i even wrote a blog post about it called sportsmen and ecologists that these are really people who should work together on protecting of the land and on protecting of the wildlife, mm-hmm. not necessarily fight with each other about how we're going to use that, right? Because if we're not going to work together, we may lose it all to completely. Mm-hmm. And then there's like nothing for nobody. Okay. So that's that's my, my point of view. And I'm, through that podcast also, I'm trying to spark the discussion between people who are maybe not so fond of hunting, but are fond of the environment, and if people who are maybe not so fond about ecological organizations and all, you know, greenies or whatever, but yeah. they're fond of hunting. And my point is like, well, you guys better talk to each other because this is one, this is one land, this is one, one landscape, right? Okay. So yeah, there's something worth looking at. So last thing before we wrap this up, yeah. uh, I want to touch on the, on the fishing and protecting of the of the. Uh, oceans and uh fishing rights and 
how how do you see this issue? Because obviously there's year and year discussion about fishing quotas that are too big or too small. Are French fishing Irish waters? Are not fishing Irish waters? Are what about local communities yeah. that's supposed to be? What's your your take on that? Oh, it, it goes right back to 1972 when the negotiations were going on for Ireland to join the EU. I mean, mm-hmm. we literally sold the family silver. We handed <laughs> over Irish fishing waters to the European Union and didn't even leave ourselves with the crumbs. And my, my father, before he went to jail, he was a, a fisherman. He came from a small farming background and his, his main occupation was fishing. Mm-hmm. And I understand acutely how decimated the Irish fishing industry has been over successive decades since joining the European Union. It was basically what we gave in order to get the some of the benefits that have been associated <laughs> with being a member of the EU. So the, the greatest bugbear I have is that we have Irish fishermen who are being criminalised um, for fishing outside of their quota in Irish fishing waters, while at the same time they're looking on at French and Spanish trawlers and they're not even being boarded. Um, And who knows if they are fishing inside or outside their very generous quotas. It's the Irish fishermen that are continuously being targeted Mm -hmm. and checked to see if they're filling up their logbook correctly. Are they catching what they are allowed to catch and within the quantities that they're allowed? That said, we do have some massive uh, fishing vessels that are Irish owned as well mm-hmm. um, and it's it's no different to the farming situation here mm-hmm. we have those factory fishing boats who are basically taking the majority of the spoils and there's very little left to be divided out amongst our fishermen and there definitely has to be a, a rebalancing done um, because there are very few people who would have been involved in the fishing industry with my father at the mm. time when he was that are still involved today. And mm. I'm not aware of too many people um, under the age of 40 that are engaged in fishing. And that to me says it all. Mm. And aside from that, it is a very dangerous occupation to have yes. um, in my own community. I mean, when you go back to, to Fina Pier uh, a couple of years ago, we set up a, a fisherman um, memorial committee to commemorate those who had been lost at sea. And during the period that we were planning to develop this monument to the people, we lost another person from our community. Hmm. And we, when we were putting the plaques in place uh, with the names of all of the individuals, we had to leave space because we're resigned to the fact that in the future there will be others from our community who are going to be lost out of Phoenix Harbour as well. Mm. So it's a really dangerous profession. It's not a well-paying one for the smaller fishermen mm-hmm. um, at all. Uh, sometimes they might have a good haul and they might have a decent amount of money, but the next time they go out, it might cost them more, especially the skipper, if he's paying out a few lads in wages. Mm-hmm. It might cost him more in uh, fuel, and wages than what he actually gets for for what they bring. And do you in. think it's because because the state of the ocean is 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 bad and you know that the, the part of part of that is that yeah. because of the our inshore waters are so you know here I say decimated in terms of number of fish and the quality of fish, then uh, operating outside of the issues that you mentioned, yeah. but operating a small fishing boat is really not viable, and you need to have like this big you know, super trawler 
that can, you know, kind of sucked in whatever's left. Well, it's those super trawlers that I believe are causing most of the issue when it yes. comes to no the, the catches that they get. But no even, um, I think there's a myriad of reasons there. I mean, you have competing markets around the world. Um, like, say, for instance, most recently, the oyster fishermen. Um, they actually cancelled a number of the days that they were going out because they mm-hmm. weren't able to get the price for their oysters you mm-hmm. you have issues uh, around this country where there may be um stuff going into the ocean that shouldn't be going in treatment plants not working correctly and stuff mm-hmm. like that and that's yep. causing issues so yeah. you have a myriad of issues going on there but at the end of the day our governments successive governments have sold out our fishing communities and what we need to be doing, um, say in Kerry County Council, for example, is identifying ways in which we can generate some economic activity in our coastal regions so that those who were so dependent on fishing mm-hmm. as their only source of income can diversify yes. and, and have other options and other sources of income. Would, would like a marine protected area be the one? Yeah, I mean, the development of this blue way to Phoenix is going to be um, a big plus. At one stage, I was asking the county manager to explore the possibility of uh, developing either Phoenix or Dingle as potential stop offs for cruise liners. Um, it would obviously depend on the depths and the stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, perhaps even being a service port. That wouldn't be good for the environment, would it? Um, well, they're coming anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're... Oh passing by Ireland so you know it's not that you're going to prevent the number of cruise liners that are in the ocean what you're doing is you're just getting some kind of a, a benefit from it you and that they might could also control them better with, with dropping their waste and stuff like that yeah well you could you can impose all of that yeah but i'm sure mm. the other destinations where they go to try and do that mm-hmm. too but even being a service port uh for some of those companies that are exploring off of mm-hmm. the Irish coast. I mean, they're exploring anyway and looking yes. for gas, gas and oil reserves. So why not have food mm-hmm. producers in Kerry mm-hmm. supplying them with what they mm-hmm. need? Why not mm-hmm. use Fina Port to mm-hmm. ship that in and mm-hmm. out to wherever they're drilling? Would you would you would you be supportive of those companies who are looking for gas and drilling and so on? Or it's not something no, that I, you like. Um, my own party position as well as my own personal is that where you have natural resources like that, it is the state in an ideal situation that would be exploring and ensuring that any fines that are made would be used for the benefit of the people of the state and mm-hmm. not for the benefit of increasing already bursting at the seams bank accounts for multi-global mm-hmm. Um, yeah. corporations um, but the the reality of where we are now is the governments that we have haven't been interested in that mm-hmm. and they have sold off rights to these uh, companies so yeah. they're going to be drilling there anyway yeah. regardless of I'm coming more from the perspective of, of protecting of the environment and like this yeah. that can't be good for the, the well look resources. you know there's there's arguments for and against uh, not even for and against there are arguments that say how destructive um mm-hmm the exploration of gas and oil is to the environment and then there are arguments that those companies put forward and I'm sure they're well paid for positions mm-hmm. where they show all the researches and about all the protections they put in place to minimise the impact if mm-hmm. at all and all of that and I, I'm not really going to get into the detail of that mm-hmm. but whether we like it or not no matter how ambitious our plans are to bring down our carbon footprint to develop renewable energies yeah, exactly. um, the fact remains 
that at least for the next 30 years, if not longer, we are going to need gas and oil yeah. um, in order to develop these renewable energies and to, uh, I suppose, c- complement them between now and then. So this is exploration is going on. So okay. I'm, I'm just being practical about it. Phoenix is the closest port to the Porcupine Basin, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's much closer than Vines. They're currently using, one of the companies is using Vines as a service port. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about a service port only, mm-hmm. where you're shipping out supplies to those who are out drilling. Um, yeah. And why not? Why not use FINA to be the service port? Why not let Kerry mm. County Council get the benefit of harbour dues? Why not get the local businesses benefit from the trade that would uh, develop as a result of this? Um, and, you know, if there is a find, I'm not advocating that we should be the port that they should ship the oil or, or mm-hmm. the gas into. I'm just saying that we should definitely be pitching Phoenix as a potential service port. Yeah. Um, because whether we like it or not, the government have given these companies the licenses to explore. Hmm. Last question. What do you think, what's the, what's the role of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations in driving the uh, policies of, uh, you know, protecting the environment and biodiversity and climate change? Do you think yeah. they're playing an important role or would you like to see them more coming forward and engaging with the, on the, with the governments and, and, and local communities or... Um, I, I suppose their their role is as important as anybody's. It, it's going to be a collective effort that's mm-hmm. going to achieve the positive changes that we need. Um, and without going into any specific organization, I mean, mm-hmm. any contribution that they make at all is going to be welcomed. But unless you have the political will there, the change that's needed is not going to happen. And the only way to ensure that there is a political impetus to do this mm-hmm. is if the people start demanding it and that's why I was so heartened to see the young people organizing and agitating mm-hmm. because that's what you need I mean that's what Connolly said way back in the day you need to um, organize educate and agitate and when it comes to protecting our environment I think we need to do the same and you know we, we can all individually do something small that will contribute hugely as a collective so for instance for this local election we made the decision in our office that we weren't going to order thousands of cardboard signs that take 400 years to break down. We know we have, you know, rather unpredictable weather here in Kerry, but we said, look, to heck with it. We ordered paper posters that Mm -hmm. we put onto wood. Now, Mm -hmm. a storm came two days later Mm -hmm. and most of them were destroyed. So we ordered more paper Mm -hmm. that we could staple on top of it. (laughs) And and that's the way we're getting through it. And so that was very small effort that we made that has saved thousands of posters of cardboard sitting there in somebody's shed Mm -hmm. for the next 400 years before they eventually break down or going into landfill eventually. Uh, So there's small little measures we can each make. At Kerry County Council, I've asked the county manager repeatedly to engage with local businesses to explore ways that we could incentivize or encourage them to reduce the reliance on plastic. Um, In Kerry County Council, we have uh, banned more or less the use of single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We no longer have, you know, paper and plastic cups for the water dispenser or for the teas Mm -hmm. and coffees. Mm -hmm. It's all mugs or those hard plastic cups that are reusable. Like in Kerry County Council? In Kerry County Council. And is any plastic come like at the wider Um, world with that ban? Well... (laughs) 
we have made the statement that we're not going to use single-use plastics. So if they are being used in the organization, it must be something that was purchased prior to Mm -hmm. this statement of intent. Mm -hmm. And going forward, we won't be. But when you consider the hundreds of staff Mm-hmm. that work I think it's nearly yeah. a thousand staff yeah. so if every single day one of them were using at least one but w- paper but, but, plastic but would you would you support a like a national policy to ban definitely. definitely definitely for, for single use plastics mm-hmm. yeah absolutely there, there's no need there's <laughs> there's absolutely no need um, yeah, I, I know and I know I try to be practical on, on most things but there's no need to go in and buy four apples that are in a styrofoam curved out base wrapped yes. in plastic yes. that you go up to the till and then they put it into another plastic yeah, bag. Like potatoes, they're, they're potatoes and they're in a, in a, in a plastic bucket bag. and that bucket is wrapped again, again in, in plastic. Like, what? It's, it's illogical <laughs> and it's unnecessary. Potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And when I actually prefer to buy all of my produce loose because mm-hmm. you can look at it and feel it and see what's fresh mm-hmm. and what's not but whereas they're in the pre-packaged containers which mm-hmm. is probably part of why they do it you just have to take what you get yeah and yeah. if there's one rotten piece in amongst them yeah. then you're and taking then you that have to as dispose well. the, the container yeah. listen it's been great conversation is there anything that we haven't covered and that you would wish we covered so is there anything that you would like I'd to say there leave is us with a concluding nothing thoughts? that you haven't asked me about Tommy. an awful <laughs> lot of it i wasn't expecting and i wasn't prepared so if anybody there is giving out stink about an answer i gave i was caught in the hop so i just went with the instinct <laughs> very good it was great teresha thank you very much no for problem doing tommy this. thank you You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.